Welcome to Podcast One. We hope you'll support our sponsors who bring you these podcasts absolutely free and with limited interruptions. And of course, we appreciate you listening to this show, which will get started in just a second. Hi, I'm Tavish Smiley, and I am excited to tell you that I have a brand new podcast that you can hear on PodcastOne.com. I start this July with a taste of Tavis, which is a two-show series with guests John Mellencamp and ESPN's Stephen A. Smith. Then I'll return this September with my new weekly podcast. So join the conversation this July for the taste of Tavis and again for our weekly show, which starts in September. It's the Tavis Smiley Podcast coming to PodcastOne.com, the Podcast One app, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Podcast One presents Starving for Attention with Richard Blaze, an entertaining behind-the-scenes look at the world of food, where you'll hear from anyone and everyone in the culinary industry, including restaurateurs, TV hosts, famous chefs, producers of your favorite cooking shows, and many more. Now, here's your host, Richard Blaze. Hey, everyone. So this is pretty amazing. The next couple of episodes are coming from Aspen, Colorado, where Jasmine and I were at the epic Food and Wine Classic. It was like our sixth or seventh time uh, we recorded from uh, a nice little hotel called The Dancing Bear, which also is the name of my new indie rock group. Yeah. It's nice. Um, and uh, Aspen Food and Wine is like, um, I was just thinking, like Disneyland for it's like, adults? Like, what is it? It's what like you... Sundance for chefs slash yeah, okay. Disneyland for, for people like, who the love attendees, Disney. Like, you know. Yeah. It's a lot it's, of fun, though. It's a, it's a couple of days yeah, at a great. high altitude. Everyone gets sick. That's uh, not true. <laughs> <laughs> Some people. I mean, they, be, you need uh, to drink yeah. a lot of water when right. you're there. There's oxygen bars. But it's the who's who of the culinary world. Absolutely. Uh, and you're literally just walking it's an down the street. Honor to be invited. Honor to be invited. Yep. And you're walking down the street and you're bumping into like, oh, it's Mario Batali. Oh, my God. Hey, what's going on? Tom Colicchio, Bobby Flay. Uh, we had none of those people uh, come onto the pod, but we did bring in some amazing people. Uh, upcoming is Gail Simmons, the Gail Simmons. You might know her from Top Chef. She's one of my favorite people in the entire universe. Not She's just. just dreamy she's super dreamy yeah. do you have a crush on gail i like yeah a total normal one yeah yeah well I mean, Why of course I? what yeah <laughs> well i mean i think we all do uh we also brought in andrew zimmerman i mean really i didn't think i could fall more in love with andrew zimmerman i have a crush on both of them <laughs> it's a super weird uh threesome but yeah uh andrew zimmerman uh and then we brought in the adorable justin chapel oh, yeah. um, it's kind of actually they They're all great. i admire all three of them so much i want to become a person that has all of their best qualities oh yeah you'd be fun i want that to be my superhero trait uh where i just grab everyone's best quality and that's what i am like a chameleon of personalities mm. um, but it was fun jasmine you had a good time right yeah it was awesome and oh by the way we have a new podcast one app you can go on yeah. there and download it and in the uh, app store get in get down with the community is what they say there's no other podcast app like this i mean download the new podcast one apps now in the app store or on google play Find out everything about your favorite shows and get more content for my show, Starving for Attention. Find articles, social media, episodes, make playlists. It's easy to comment and connect with other show fans. We have our own little community on here. Hey, listen, it's easy to comment and connect with other show fans because we have like our own little community on there. Share your favorite content. See behind the scenes photos. I hope they don't show that one, actually. Get 360 video or watch a bunch of shows in virtual reality there's over a thousand videos on there right now it's like you're in the studio i'm a little nervous now have they been recording us the whole time 
This might have happened. You should have worn a shirt. I should have worn a shirt. It looks so cool with so many things you can do, including fun things like rewards for listening. I need rewards. You know the rewards I need, Jasmine? I need, Subscriptions. Yeah, I need people to go to the podcast one Downloads. app. They need to download Starving for Attention. Uh, those are the kind of rewards I need. This is amazing for our fans. Come jump in. Jump in. Go to the Podcast One app. Download uh, the new experience because that's what it is. Lots of uh, good food and drink. And we had lots of great conversations. So enjoy. Good afternoon, cats and kittens. This is Starving for Attention, a podcast committed to zooming in on the food industry and showcasing its tastiest bits and pieces. That's right. We are the offal of the podcast world. And speaking of chopped liver, we're going to chat with everybody who's anybody, including a few unrecognizable nobodies. I'm Richard Blaze, that proverbial chopped liver. Joining me is Jasmine. Hi, Jasmine. Hi. Not from the walk-in in studio in LA today, but from Aspen, Colorado. And today, speaking of offal, we have a real piece of grade A foie gras, maybe even some foie gras lacquered with champagne gelée and studded with black truffle, the unequivocally talented Andrew Zimmerin. AZ, what's up, man? How are you, my friend? But first, uh, you know, uh, I have to, a little bit of business here. We have to uh, do a little bit of reading for, uh, you know, promos. Mm-hmm. So I'm just going to read a quick little thing. Um, Andrew, you love donuts, right? I do love donuts, Richard. Yeah, everyone loves donuts, um, especially like those yuzu peanut butter ones that Wiley Dufresne is serving now, or maybe the huckleberry, huckleberry jelly ones served in all those cool Portland restaurants. Of course, you love the cronut and all of its kin, but you can't get all of those donuts in your baker's dozen tomorrow without your own private jet like uh, AZ has. Um, but now you can. Order today using the promo code STARVINGFORPOD, and we'll get those donuts to you by the morning. How? You might ask via drone. That's right, Dronuts, the fly-by-night donut delivery system. That's Dronuts, the country's first donut drone delivery system, now available in seven states. That's kind of fun, isn't it? It's awesome. It's totally not real it's either. Totally not real. So it's I just, the greatest idea ever. Uh, so, uh, so I can dream. I was going to say I can dream, but are you interested in going in on this? I would put fifty grand behind <laughs> Dronuts right now. Fifty grand, yes. We're thinking that a dozen donuts would probably have to be about a thousand dollars. Doesn't matter. I'm talking about if we get. Here's the deal. It's it's can it scale? Yes. Thousands of donut carrying drones whizzing along below. And safely in zones that they're not going to interfere with commercial aircraft. That's right. Let the first, if you were going to open up the world to drone delivery, what would be some of the things that you would want most? Medicine for children, uh, water in places that don't have it, and then number three would be um, donuts made with arcane ingredients for one percenters. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Yes. I think that would be the way uh, I would go. Yeah, I, listen. So I think we're going to talk business after this. So we had this. an investor. We had an investor. I'm your first one in. Yeah, that's only the second first episode. First money in, first money out. I love it. <laughs> there you go. Um, and that's actually a real donut. That, the yuzu peanut butter, that's a real yes. Wiley Dufresne donut. Yes. I haven't had it yet. Have you? I have not. I am actually going to uh, Dew's. Okay, yeah, is yeah. yeah. I think it is. is yeah, Dew's Donuts, it. yeah. Uh, it is my, you know, I'm in New York this week. I, I touch down. I have a bunch of things that I got to do work wise and stuff. And in the little bit of spare time I have, I always have to make sure like, what are the two things that I want to go see? And I think the pilgrimage of people like us and the folks who are listening uh, to the podcast, I think we're the people that 
circle that and say, this is what I want to go do when I'm in New York. I want to go do Dew's Donuts. So now that's something that like, obviously it's your show, which is based on, but that's, Oh no, no, no. I'm talking about like real life. And it, and it is, it is funny. I mean, we've, you know, I know that we've talked about this uh, in the past, just privately, but the, I, I really believe that the reason the the content that I generate in whatever format it's in has been successful is that it actually is how I live my life. And I think in general, what comes from the heart reaches the heart. You know, they always tell writers, you know, write from your experience, right? You would always tell a young cook who's working for you at, you know, at, at the restaurant or one of your eateries, or if you take a protege under your wing, start with stuff that you're familiar with. Start cooking the things you love. Start with something that you have some knowledge of because it's the best way to to move ahead quickly, right? I mean, you've got to be put into a position to be uncomfortable to learn, right? But at the same time, you also want to have some things that are really familiar so that you can have some successes. You give someone some wins and their confidence grows and you, you're trying to put confidence into the hearts and minds of the people that are coming mm-hmm. up when you're new to anything, whether it's learning how to play tennis or learning how to cook. Um, for me, I I mean, I'm just a ridiculous research geek and I, I read a hundred magazines a week. I mean, just for fun. And I'm constantly on my phone at night before I go to bed looking at websites. And then I text myself and I compile these lists and I keep them in folders. And when I'm going to cities, I got to go check something out. And I'm lucky enough to have friends like you guys who are like, oh my God, we just got back from blank and you have to go to blank. And you know, that's what puts stuff on my radar screen. Sometimes I discover it on my own. I like going to neighborhoods and just walking and you find stuff. I mean, half the stuff that's in our shows is we've researched and scouted. And the other stuff is, is when I get on the ground, uh, I just start walking around and I say, no, let's drop that story. I found this little Arepa stand, you know, in this tiny little town in, you know, Colombia or, uh, you know, Venezuela or wherever that that's got a better Arepa than the place we're going and it's unknown and it's discoverable. And I think it's really the kind of cool thing that the audience is into. Cause I want to be that tip of the spear for them. Do you think it's better because you've found the place organically? Like, do you think any of that's psychological that like, Oh, I was just walking down the street and I stumbled upon this uh, building and Oh my God, they had this amazing food there. I think, I think, I think television can both be an incredibly personal conduit and it can also be a barrier. So I'll tell you some of the things that I think make storytelling on television more authentic. And I think audience responds to it better. I think they respond to things when I'm hanging out with someone I know. Mm. There's just a better chemistry. It's funnier. So there's more of that sort of give and take. I don't have to necessarily know them well, but there's a familiarity as opposed to walking into a place with a stranger where they, I mean, they're civilians. They're not used to being on TV. And there, there are some nuts and bolts things about the making of television that you just have to do, like how you look or don't look in the camera, how you speak and what kind of bites, who you address, how close you stand to someone, you know, because TV hates space. I mean, all those little sort of like nuts and boltsy things that you learn along the way. But I do think that there is a part of especially my type of television where I can either look in the camera or write it into a script that says, here's how I found it, that if it's the same way that other people find it or the way that they would like advice to find things kind of reaches them and and makes it stick a little bit 
stronger. You know what I mean? Everyone always says to me, how do you go into these neighborhoods in Toronto? You know, Toronto has five, great example. Toronto has five Chinatowns, right? right? I can make a pretty good argument um, that Toronto is one of the three or four places in the world to eat the best Chinese food on planet Earth. Okay? Wow. What's well, five Chinatowns and continuous new waves of immigrants and some really it's spectacular stuff going on, right? So I will go into certain Chinatowns and, you know, I'm there with Suser Lee and he's like, we're going here, 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 and here. And it's like, Naturally. okay, done deal, right? Then I will go off into another neighborhood and just explore it on my own. So, you know, I walk into a restaurant and if it's busy and I see pretty food on the tables and I can smell the smell, that that char from the wok, that-, that The wok What is- uh, Wok eye, breath the of the dragon. The wok eye, the wok you know, there's certain telltale signs, happy smiles on the faces of the people who are serving there. You know, there's lots of things I tell people to look for. Why would you? I learned it as a kid in New York City coming out of the Museum of Natural History. There's four hot dog vendors. Three are doing no business. And one guy has the classical music station tuned up. It's opera. And he's like singing along with it. And he's, he's it's the same sabrette stand that's got everyone else. But he's got these little jars of homemade pickles on the top that you come to find out his Armenian wife makes. And if you ask for them, he'll put these little spicy pickled inch-long baby eggplants on top of your hot dog, right? Mm. And there's customers in twos or threes. 10 feet away, shoving the first hot dog in your mouth and getting back on the line, right? Ooh. So do you go to his hot dog stand or you go to the empty one just because there's no line? You go to his stand every right. time, right? So there's there there are ways to kind of Sherlock Holmes it. And I think if we can sort of reveal that in the show in some ways, I do think it connects to the audience better. And I do think that they then have a reason to tune into you next week and next week and next week. The the secret to making great television isn't to make 10 great episodes, 20 great episodes. The key to making great television in the, in the follow doc reality space, right? Cause we don't script anything. We don't pre stage anything in bizarre foods um, or bucket list. That's now Zimmern's list that I start starting next week or driven by food or bizarre world or bizarre foods, America, or any of the, the shows that I've done. We we actually sort of like, you know, set down and the camera follows me. And in that space, I think the secret is can you get people to tune into you every Tuesday night, year after year? And, and that has more to do than the content. That has to do with whether they're connecting to something that I'm doing on screen. And it's not because it's definitely not because I look, you know, the best in tight jeans or know the most about food or anything like that. I think it is just because I'm me. So, yeah. It's, it's it, you're, if you're not you in the docu follow reality space, people are just going to tune out. So what is it? They, it's, they say it's, they want to, people want to be you or either they don't like you or they feel like they are you. Which one, which one is it? I don't think it's really either. I think you have to be a good avatar for the audience. I think the audience is curious. You know, if you're taking them, if I'm taking the audience into, uh, you know, McKetty market in Samoa, right? No one's going to go there. No one's, I mean, Right. I just, yeah. just of the millions of people that seen that show, ten will go in the next twenty years. I mean, it's just, and it's that's not the goal. Flung, that's not the goal. I don't. I'm trying to bring that place to them. Right now, I would argue, and I do all the time. The best experience is for them to go. And sometimes I will turn to the camera and say, "I know how much this is turning you on, and you can get a thing like this at you know in this place or this place, but 
there is something singular about being here in a market that is still an active tuna economy where where barefoot, you know, tribal matais, the chieftains are actually coming with 50 pounds of tuna that have been taken in by handline and trading it for other foods, you know, for the community that they take back 20 miles down the road on the beach, right? There is being an avatar for the audience means asking the right question. It means telling the right little joke that's on everyone's mind, you know, right. when the hot dog hits the bun <laughs> yes. in a safe yeah. way. Right. Yeah. Um, being respectful of the audience and being their avatar, I think is the most crucial thing. Cause then they're, then they're with you. They're literally with you in that space. And so I never look in the camera and talk unless like I'm in a market and something, there's like steam from a dumpling cart that just pulled in and took the lid off. And I'm like, oh my God, come on. And you you can include people along that journey as long as you're speaking their language and answering their questions before they know to ask them. Now, listen, you're, you're a brand now, right? So a lot of brands have like their target demographic. They even yep. will name that person. It's Mary Smith from Dallas and Correct. she drives an SUV. That's right. Is, is there, what's the target demographic for uh, your shows? Uh 35 to 40 year old, super successful, uh, bearded chefs living in San Diego. That's our, that's <laughs> so our just niche. That's, just... You are my muse. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm we, glad I in could In pre-production be. meetings, we say, does it pass the blaze test? Yeah. And if it does, if it does, <laughs> then it's included in the show. We're going to Samoa. We're going, but, uh, you know, what's and, and, and maybe this has to do chicken or the egg. I'm not sure what it is. Um, when we first started to create the show, I created six or seven different silos of stories. We always have to have a family meal. We always have to have a process story. We always have to have a market story because I, I believe markets can tell us more than museums. I'm not anti-museum. I'm just really pro-market. Wow. Um, you know, I want to do the last bottle of water in the desert story something that's disappearing and documenting something. I mean, it's a little six minute, that act is a little six minute mini doc, right? right. That usually has a different tone than the family meal or the market story. So these silos of stories that we don't draw attention to in the show, there's no arrow pointing. Hey, here's the family meal story. But I just wanted to, I wanted to design a show that I could watch and my family could watch. And I think that the great thing about uh, Bizarre Foods, uh, you know, the biggest piece of content that I generate the and the bit, most mass marketed piece of content that I generate is that 10-year-old kids get one thing out of it. You know, college kids get another thing out of it. 30-somethings get something out mm -hmm. of it. You know, their moms and dads get something out of it. Something and forever. whole families can sit down and watch the show together because, you know, we have the inside dirty jokes that are kind of Shrek-like. You know, it's, yes. it's, it's PG yeah. or PG thirteen. It's just enough. Over the head. It's the it's enough to be on crowd. scripts. It's not just me raising an eyebrow. You know, a picture tells a thousand stories or whatever. Uh, I think I I ruined that metaphor. But you, you know, if you're showing something, sometimes I just have to look at the camera. Sometimes I don't have to do anything. I just have to deadpan it. Yeah. You know, I mean, you do that. I've seen you do that on TV. Um, it's you know. I'm really lucky in that people take different parts of me out. I have some fans who love me because their kids eat broccoli because they play the Andrew. You know, if Andrew Zimmern can eat that fermented whale anus, Bobby, why can't you eat <laughs> yes. your broccoli? You love him and watch him on TV. And then I have, you know, I mean, I bump into them here, you know, 60-year-old couples who say, it's the only show we watch on TV. You know, we sit down at night. We love it because you take us in these places. And it's a deep dive in the culture. And you're so respectful of them. And, we, we, and they have this whole intellectual take on it that I also intend. 10, but mostly I want it to be fun. 
I wanted to create an entertainment vehicle that could teach the world about practicing patience, tolerance, and understanding at a time when I thought that those sort that that genre of things was was beginning to disappear and be compromised. And I had a very intentional way to sell it. The hook was fat white guy goes around world eats bugs, which I quickly abandoned after the first season right? because I knew in the branded content space from a personality brand standpoint that I could control more of the show, the more popular I became. And that was, that was, that was very intentional. And I always talk about it like a Trojan horse. I just, I wanted to get on TV because I studied the space and I, you know, and you can see season one, no one, Talents on the executive producer show becomes a hit season two talents and executive producer. Right. I mean, it's just, it's just the ask and the leverage begins to switch over. I, I think networks are really comfortable giving the right talent, that freedom. You kind of have to earn it. Like if you show that you're smart and you can curate the network's brand and you can curate the material for the audience the right way, and you can demonstrate that you know how to handle that kind of thing, they'll let you run with it. And so now our show is as much about, a history show, a food culture show, but above all other things, it's always about acceptance of other people and other cultures. And you know, we do it through food, and I—that's why I'm really, really proud of it. So yeah. Did you know that Travel Channel was buying food shows, or did how did that pitch come about? I. <laughs> It's very funny. I actually went to, especially now the Travel Channel is a script show, which owns Food Network and Cooking. So it's a very, very funny sort of way a lot of people all wound up in the same room. But I was doing local. I was the the house chef on two different HGTV shows. One was in syndication, but HG had it in our market. T- uh, typical um, Rebecca's Garden, which was a gardening show. Yes. So I would go on there and you know cook vegetables and things like that. This is. 18 years this ago. is just amazing because this is YouTube material for me tonight. Is it? Oh, it's, it's, it's hysterical. Yeah. It's hysterical. <laughs> uh, then there was a show called Typical Mary Ellen, which was a, 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 a charming 50 something housewife with tons of tips, like how to get that, you know, you know, crusty coffee stain out of your shirt and, you know, how to clean your candelabras, you know, with, with Vaseline and baking soda. And, you know, I mean, all the, you know, house tip show. Right. And, but they started to do food segments and they needed to have a house chef. So I was doing those two things and pushing tape around and I made a little piece piece of tape uh, with some friends of mine where I was chasing chicken around a farm and then ate every piece of it and the liver and the heart and all this other stuff and just sort of teaching people about not wasting anything. We shot that in Minnesota on, you know, literally one of those old little Panasonic handheld things, you know, 18 years ago. And I started trying to take meetings with network executives. And I, I should point out that those were the days when you actually could do it. I mean, luck has a lot to do with it. I got to stage, you know, in Paris at Alain Sandorin's restaurant, L'Arcastrada, when it was, you know, the great modernist restaurant of its era, three-star Michelin doing, you know, incredible cuisine. But there weren't 10,000 people submitting resumes, you know, online to try to, you know, get a stagiaire position there. We didn't have all these cooking schools. Basically, it was like, yeah, you want to sleep on the couch. We're not going to pay you. But then you got to get up in the morning and haul boxes from the market. But at least you get to go with the chef and sous chef. And if you have to pick beans all day long and shuck oysters all night, that's it. And by the way, don't talk to anyone unless you're spoken to. And I was like, okay. So I, I I got to do that. Right place, right time. Right. Today, you can't just... 
knock on the back door of the of the French Laundry yeah. or the restaurant at Meadowood or Noma. That's or what Olivia. I literally did at El Bulli. I just right. climbed up a mountain that's and right. knocked on a door and got lucky that some Hungarian kid that, had quit and there I you fell go. into the kitchen. Kaboom. Yes. Kaboom. So right place, right time for a lot of us. Um, although I find it interesting that Noma uh, very generously takes about 100 uh, interns, externs, whatever you want to call them, into the restaurant every year. But the resumes that I see, they take about 10,000 a year. Wow. I, I love that whole uh, – the uh, the fake stage thing. Oh, it happened. The, the, you know. the, the resume. I always tell them. I say. I say. I always take my phone out when someone is coming to our place and wants to wear, and they have got some fancy name and stage. And I was like, oh my god, let me call them. I'll tell them that you're here. And I just look at their eyes. It's pretty funny. Um, but we digressed. Um, so I did the same thing, you know, with with the TV. I just knocked on doors and took meetings, and you know, I had tape and. I was, you know, adequately charming enough and uh, everyone kept saying no, 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 no. And eventually uh, Allison Page, who now is a, uh, you know, one of the uh, leadership team members at, at Scripps, um, she was a, a young executive there. I think she was a, just a producer showrunner there actually at the time. And she thought that my idea could really go somewhere culture food she liked me all the rest of it encouraged me uh to go shoot some other tape and stuff like that and you know just that little bit of confidence that you put in someone really does a lot sure right sure. and you know i just kept knocking on doors and knocking on doors and eventually i made the decision because i was watching i was a student of this stuff were you getting I, depressed I because I, I'm find, I find Hollywood more deflating than like your stage scenario. Because at least the stage, they'll probably let you in and peel potatoes one day. Well, there's more restaurants to do it in. Also, right. I true, mean, five true. no's, you're going to get a yes on number six. Television is a lot more. But television is so like they kill you with flattery and, and, and then upbeat. Don't take and I love this. I love yeah. this. This is a great idea. Yeah. I mean, I, and I find dead. it. <laughs> and then, it, and then yeah, you never hear about yeah, it. You never get a call back. Right. Um, I, I did, but at the same time, and I, I think this is the luck piece. At the same time, I'm seven, eight, nine, ten years into sobriety, and I'm learning tools. You know, a, a spiritual kit of tools is being demanded of me to be practiced to change the way that I think about things. Mm. Right. So the old selfish Andrew Zimmern, who was a user of people and a taker of things and only looking out for himself would have been so angry and resentful at the first. No, he would have either quit because I was a great starter and a fantastic quitter right. and a lousy <laughs> finisher. Um, or it would have just sent me to the bar to change the way that I was feeling. But I was engaged in a, sort of a life transformation at the same time that allowed me to do things like get married and have a family because mm. I was I was an irresponsible shithead. I never would have been able to do that you know, before I got sober. I never would have been able to start the businesses that I've done and incubate those unless I was sober. I never would have been able to handle the emotional depression of rejection, 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 and at the same time believing in yourself so strongly that I knew I was almost going to will it to make it happen. And eventually I got to travel channel. They said, look, find a production company because even if we said yes to you, you need someone to make the show. You can't just make the show. Now, I did not take that well. I looked at them and I just said, of course I can. I mean, nobody, I've, I give me a challenge. I'll assemble the team. I'll do it. You know, I, I, I had been a chef in restaurants, right? We're leaders. We're problem solvers. You sit down with your team and you just figure out what you need to make it happen. And then you go do it. And I'm a fast learner. 
And they said, yeah, we, you know, we have delivery issues and there's a lot of technical aspects to this that you don't know. It'll take you years to learn it. So you got to align yourself with a production company. So I thought about it and I realized they were right. It was a faster route. Um, so I searched around and I found a production company that was, you know, a, a good fit for me. And we went and made five minutes of tape that was a little with better equipment, right? You know, uh, cameraman and a sound guy and a producer to take notes, and you know, dropped it, gave it to an editor, and we put that in front of Travel Channel. They loved it. Then they gave us a little bit more money and said, "Okay, now make a better version of that." And so we went down to New Orleans and did what was going to look like an act in the show that we ended up doing at a future date, all about the nutria that are down there. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, delicious water-going rodent and swamp rats, yeah. kind of. Well, you can't. Right. You could yeah. call they they okay. live in swamps, yes. the bayou, and They're they rats. are rats. Yes. <laughs> if if a twenty-pound squeaking orange-tooth behemoth <laughs> that eats five times its weight in the maton, that floating carpet of greenery that covers the bayou, uh, is a swamp, absolutely. Um, but they are delicious, and they exercise a lot, and they eat a lot of vegetables. We love them. Not, yeah. yeah and they don't eat dead things, which if you're a critter eater is very, very important. So don't just go eat a possum. They eat dead things, but eat as much nutria as you can. But they're trouble. Aren't there so many of them that they... Well, yes. And it's, I mean, they've tried to eradicate the nutria problem a hundred different ways. And that's why the, the, you know, DNR, you know, lets us go down there and kill them, quote unquote, out of yeah. season as often as we want to show people on TV. Yes, everyone should be eating them. And I believe people should be eating. We need to eat from a diverse range of ingredients. Uh, you, you know and believe that. But, you know, Travel Channel just kept... You know, up in, and eventually they went and they commissioned two pilots. One was called Ooh. Bizarre Foods of Asia, and one was called World's Best Ballpark Foods. Ooh, a t- double YouTube play, that. a double play. So, World's Best Ballpark Foods was, I mean, that was the show I wanted to do. I mean, <laughs> run around the world to sports stadiums yes. and do the food that's outside, inside, part of the culture. I could, I mean, it, it basically opened up to eating anything I wanted to and having a front row seat at every sporting event around the world that I wanted to go to. Amazing, <laughs> right? Um, they aired that and the Bizarre Foods pilot. Uh, and, you know, I'll make it up. One got a five. One one, the other one got a five one two, and so they went with the five one. You know, by a hundredth of a point, Bizarre Foods won. It worked wow. out great, but every year I say to someone at the network, you know, it'd be really great to bring back World's Best Ballpark. <laughs> right? Yeah, remember that Don't thing we think? did? That pilot- I mean, because all five I see one. is like Super Bowl, Final Four, Copa sure. Mundial. You know. Wafer Cup. I mean, just everything that I would ever want to go to the the rugby world championships. I mean, just cricket, finals. fantastic cricket finals, which is scintillating. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's for like days, a four yeah. a four day match, or is it? A, I'm assuming a cricket. It's a match. The, the one person in the food world that should love cricket as much as I do is you because of the great clothes. I would love that the bowlers' helmets are and, out of this world. I've almost ordered shirts. one just to wear. And you, you do, do it. It's like raffles in Singapore, 1890. I mean, you just have this romantic thing with you know the you know, the jingle yes. of an icy tropical drink crossing a perfectly manicured green lawn and the clink of the bat against yeah, the ball. Plus Wes Anderson sort of did a parody with Whack Bat yes, and Fantastic yeah, Mr. Fox. I, yeah. I'll get, we'll have to go to a match. I, cricket is fantastic. We could be there for a long time. All right, everyone, taking a break from uh, the amazing Andrew Zimmer. And even though I don't want to, to tell you something about True Car, a lot of people don't know that using True Car can also help you buy a used car. Did you know that, Jasmine? 
I didn't, no. Uh, in fact, there are over 700,000 pre-owned vehicles available from True Car certified dealers nationwide. Whether you're looking to buy new or used, you can get upfront pricing information that empowers discounts off list price for used cars and a better buying experience through our True Car certified dealer network. And also, as an aside, we drove in today and saw their logo. Remember that? Oh, yeah, right yeah, there. Yeah, so it was a sign. Yeah. Total sign. There are over 700,000 pre-owned vehicles available from True Car certified dealers nationwide. You'll see what other people paid for the car you want so you know what a fair price is and feel confident, which is something that I always need. I need to feel more confident. You guys know that. <laughs> uh, with True Car, you can connect with a local certified dealer of your choosing so you can enjoy a quick easy buying experience that's something that we all want using true car you can easily find the new or used car you want true car via the true car pricing curve will show you what other people in your area paid for the same car you're looking for you can be like hey you paid too much for that i used true car and i got the right price now you know what a fair price is so you can feel extra confident. Once you register, you'll see a real price on actual inventory. This is a competitive pricing offered to you only by a True Car certified dealer for an actual vehicle on their lot, a real one that's there. It's pricing you'll see before going to a dealership so you can feel confident when you show up. True Car shows their customer all of their available incentives before they even arrive at the dealership. Over 3 million cars have been sold to True Car users by the True Car Certified Dealer Network. There are over 13,000 True Car Certified Dealers nationwide. When you're ready to buy a new or used car, visit True Car to enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Some features not available in all states. I hope in our state. I only buy used cars. Hmm. Hey, have you heard? Podcast One has a whole bunch of awesome new shows filled with big names that are waiting for you on our brand new amazing app. This one's a game changer. There's Norman Lear talking to Amy Poehler, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, and Charles Barkley. Geffen Playhouse Unscripted with Brian Cranston, Josh Gad, and soon Neil Patrick Harris. Nice. OC Real Housewife, Heather Dubrow's World, Lady Gang's Three Mimosa Podcast with Leah Michelle, Nelly Furtado, L. King, and more. Plus every episode of The Adam Carolla Show, Dan Patrick, and Rich Eisen. And if you like what happens in the ring, we've got Steve Austin, Chris Jericho, Chael Sonnen, and a whole bunch more. So download our one-of-a-kind new app and see for yourself. Go to the App Store, Google Play, or download it now at podcastone.com. This is Starving for Attention with Richard Blaze. So you basically produced like three sizzles before you even got to a pilot and then did two pilots. Four. Then we did two pilots and then it took them a year to figure it out. Um, And then eventually um, they said, yeah, we'll buy eight eight or ten of them they made the production company deficit finance at first um then they ended up commissioning if i remember the history correctly and then and this was the the fun part you know we were making them we had to bank i think i think we banked the first six before the first the last two were shot um but episodes one and two were the first madrid show first spain show and the uh morocco show and in the first Spain show, it was great, but Ferran said, yes, you can come in. And you know, mm. through friends, we got into that kitchen. Um, and ours was the first television show ever to go into the kitchen at El Bulli. Wow. And so to have that, we, we had such resistance because the, the movie Borat had just come out. And everyone thought with a name like Bizarre Food, especially overseas, they thought we were going to make fun of people who ate weird food. Right. So – um, but once we could say, oh, yeah, we just shot at El Bulli, all of a sudden the world of great restaurants opened to us, which is how we've been able to get into so many great kitchens. I mean, you know, I've sat there and, you know, 
cooked with Ferran and Garnier and, I mean, you know, uh, Yubo in China and chefs that you, you really only dream about. You know, Hervé Tis sat me down at the, you know, agricultural agriculture school in Paris where he teaches and showed me on a blackboard, you know, reverse cooking of an egg and all his theoretical stuff that he would talk to Garnier about. And then in the show literally sends me on my way to meet Garnier. And I mean, I'm like talking about the walks they take together every other morning because they're best friends and how, and that's how this whole, one of the ways this whole scientific approach to food began. And I was like, this is like, the fifth episode we're making, like pinch myself, right? Um, but the third episode, we were in Ecuador and a witch, the crew was down for like three or four hours. And I said, I was just an animal for working. I mean, that's all I do is run around working. I'm like, come on, let's go shoot something. There's so much cool shit here. Let's shoot it. And the producer very wisely said, like, everyone needs a break. And, you know, you can overshoot. And, you know, it's like we, we've got our stories. And I'm like, okay, you're right. So I wander off and I find this weird sign. I asked our translator what it was. And he said, oh, that's a Yakshi medicine man, an original Incan uh, shaman. And he's an exorcist. And so in, I, I ran back and I said, all right, I have found a Yakshi medicine man and let's have this guy perform an exorcism on me because they believe everyone has bad spirits in them, yeah. right? It's like the Cherokee okay. wisdom, yeah. two wolves wake up inside you every day, the, the good one and the bad one. Oh. And the, the one that wins is the one you feed. So be a good person. So you're yeah. spiritually you just fit. explained so much to me about myself. There, oh, it's, yeah. it's, but it's true. <laughs> I mean, it's true for all of us. Yeah. And so we, we got in there and this guy... I stripped naked. He spat on me, lit me on fire, uh, beat two guinea pigs against me until they were dead, whipped me with these branches that were poisonous until my body broke out. Now, which is just a Thursday for you. Correct. That's a Thursday night. That's an off day. You know, I'm at home. Uh, And uh, so when the show aired, when that show aired, it was such a big moment. The next day, uh, my office, which was me and... uh, a part-time someone to help me with my books and just stay organized because all of a sudden stuff was being to happen for me in the third bedroom in our house. Um, the phone rang. It's like, hey, it's it's the Jay Leno show. Can you come out and be on the show on Thursday night? We've just seen you get spat on and lit on fire <laughs> and just all this stuff. And it's just like Jay just thinks this is the funniest thing he's ever seen. And so I went out and I ended up doing the Leno show three or four times that year. Um, and until the producer there who loved me left as is so often the case, but that was enough to sort of push the show out of just like a good rating show on travel channel into kind of like a a heritage important show right away. And I had uh, a platform to talk to millions of Americans that just to say the words, yes, I go around the world and eat strange things to bring you into other cultures and explain culture through food. But at the same time, there's a higher purpose to it and enough of it connected with people. And the rest, as they say, is history. Now, was that so was that the Jay Leno, the first appearance? Was that sort of like the moment where you're like, oh, wow, like this actually worked, like all of this hard work and all of the sizzle reels? Yeah, and, and it was also the most... It actually was one of when if you say, oh, look back at your life, well, you know, name the two or three moments where you're standing there and you have an out of body experience and you see everything with extreme clarity. I'm in the wings. I'm 55. I grew up watching Johnny Carson, but the theme music to tonight's show stayed the same. When you hear the band play you in and he's about to announce you, you hear, you know, the man behind the desk. In this case, The Tonight Show for my generation. I mean, that was a lot of late night TV. There wasn't any. It was Johnny, right? Right. 
And, you know, to hear Jay Leno say, oh, welcome back. And, you know, in 20 seconds, you're walking out on The Tonight Show. And that's been sort of like the cultural pillar for you for your whole lifetime. And you're like, oh, my God, I'm I've have helped build something that is that is now a part of American culture. Like if you're on The Tonight Show, you're a part of American culture. And when Jay at the end said, you know, you're hysterical. This is great. You know, you know, we, we got to have you back. And all I remember is the whole thing about Johnny and Jay with comedians. You know, when they say, oh, you got to come back. That's like the Pope blessing. It's that, a verbal commitment. It. It's a verbal it's commitment. An aspect. And it I just sat there and I just said, holy moly, this is I can't believe where my life is headed. What's happened since I'm the most grateful person in the whole world. I feel like a Phoenix rising from the ashes and I've had the opportunity to do a lot. And that's why at a certain point, three, four years into the show, I decided that I had to turn the rest of my life into a better platform for helping other people and doing things, not because it was some saccharine, you know, guilty moment of my own or because a publicist suggested it. But because, you know, I had gone from criminal drug addict stealing purses on the streets of New York, sobered up, got these opportunities, reestablished myself in the food world, got this opportunity with Travel Channel, created this platform that gave me a really big audience that if I don't do something with it to help people, I'm really I'm wasting it. And I'm and I'm making fun of the rescue boat that came and got me, you know, out of pretty dangerous sure. shark infested waters 25 and a half years yeah ago. i was gonna ask you you know one of my questions was well you don't really have to keep doing it but you do like you're super busy but it seems like you answered my question it's like a sense of responsibility it seems that you keep pushing and and you're out there on every platform too it's not just one show i mean you're all over the place yeah i mean you have to right you have to there's so much sadness in the world and there's so many places that don't have what we have i mean we're sitting here in aspen colorado you know there's ferraris and lamborghinis that they throw keys at us for and say whiz around town we were at the top of the mountain last night taking promo pictures and someone opened up a kilo can of caviar and i'm not gonna lie to you that's fun right i really love it but that's not how the rest of the world is and there's so much need and so much attention that needs to be focused in so many other areas that the people like us that have the opportunity to spend some of our time on that, I think to not do it, it's repugnant. It's criminal. I, I think if you are lucky to be a have and you're not helping the have nots as that gap widens every year that I've been alive for 55 years, that gap has been widening. I don't understand it. I mean, there are colleagues of ours that shall definitely be unnamed who I don't think have thought of someone other than themselves since, you know, Lyndon Johnson was president. Mm. And it's one of the few things in my life that makes me angry because we can affect so much change, especially as food people. It's it's what a special place we are that we can intersect over a meal and share something with someone and tell a story of a farmer or of a different country or another culture. I mean, just with a simple little taste of food or the, you know, some of the stuff you do that, you know, makes you scratch your head where you marry uh, some 
forward thinking scientific technique to something that's just very, very typical that we all know, you know, just, you know, reinvent a different version of a you know, fried rib. chicken or a mi- rib, yeah, I mean, whatever, <laughs> whatever it is. And that gets people thinking about food and thinking about culture and thinking about possibility or maybe it just opens them up to being creative. You know, I mean, that's why. That's why I get so. It's also why I get so angry when people rail against things like Aspen and Three Star Michelin restaurants, which has been happening a lot in the press recently. It's from those places that great ideas are born and then trickle down into much more everyday usage for other people. You know, I mean, Clarence Birdseye took rapini and genetically mutated it to be a fully functioning green head of modern broccoli as we know it so that it could be iced down. You can put crushed ice on broccoli and it does not uh, affect the plant. You do the same thing with spinach. You wind up with junk. Right. So they could truck it and train it all around the country so that places could have fresh green vegetables 12 months a year. Right. This is, you know, then you got into the frozen business and I mean, that's a scientific that that's today's, you know, molecular gastronomy or modernist cooking or whatever the fuck you want to call it. I mean, I'm kind of sick and tired of the labels, but the new ideas, the new ways of doing things and the stuff that gets finance funded by the by the few, if it's done right, then can become mass marketed. And when they're good ideas, they may solve, you know, hunger in third world countries. They may be able to, I mean, look what Jose is doing with the, with the cook stoves, the solar cook solar, stoves yeah. in Haiti, you know, uh, you know, I love the idea of, you know, what my friends at Soylent have done or at, uh, uh, Hampton Creek, where, you know, big food companies that are changing the way food companies exist. I mean, you know, do you want to drop a sack of moldy rice out of the back of a Hercules C-130 into a refugee camp uh, in Somalia? Or would you rather drop bottles of water that, you know, where a, a pack of Soylent is duct tape and you know that person is getting every nutrient they need to survive that day, right? I mean, I think, you know, What's born out of this kind of stuff affects the world in a way that a lot of people don't realize. It's not a hoity-toity experience, although it could be viewed that way, the same way that my show can be viewed as fat guy runs around world eats bugs. But it's not. Sometimes you have to look behind the veil. It's like, take off the blouse. There's a really sexy bra underneath. At some point, though, did that upset you that you were the guy who eats bugs? Not for a minute. Still, it's like someone walks down the street today and they're Love like, it. hey, it's an, it's an entry, right? It's an entry for people. It not only is it an entry point, but um, how do I say this and not sound like a total douchebag? You're just going to have to agree with what my next statement. Okay. So people, <laughs> people believe it, but I, but I, but I think you will. I, I've been doing television for 17 years. We're into our 11th year, 12th season, you know, of my stuff on travel channel. I mean, I've just, I've been on a long time. Very few people last that long in one show. I mean, it's just very few. It's a very honored position. I take a great amount of pride. I was uncomfortable with it a couple years ago, but I'm, I've become more comfortable with it because I've learned how to use it as a teaching tool for the next generation of culinarians and TV people coming up. So I think it needs to be claimed so that other people understand that it can be done. I made the decision that I was going to eat that fermented whaleiness and that cricket and all the rest of that stuff because I saw hunger in America before it became uh, a fashionable pull quote for chefs on the red carpet. Mm. 
And in the last four or five years, I mean, how many articles have been written about bug eating? Yeah. I mean, a million. Everyone says entomology is the next big. It's a hot thing. It's going to say it's a hot thing. That's and has it been we're raising our daughter? Right. Has it been figured out yet? No, it has not. Is it cost effective now for Americans? No. Although I wish we, if we could somehow get the Madagascar giraffe beetle, which tastes just like shrimp. It's it's unbelievable. Wow. Okay. I, I literally would fly to Madagascar and bring it to your restaurant. That's how much I want the people of the world. It only grows on one island in the world, right? Yeah. Uh, but I think they could be propagated The because uh, they live on a plant. It's a symbiotic relationship with only one plant that grows in Madagascar. A lot of Darwinian island shit. <laughs> But I was lucky enough to see things, and it, that's always been sort of my superpower. Right. Everyone has one superpower. I have a real good gut instinct and a good sniffer for what's going to be important two, three, four years down the road. And so I knew, you know, laugh. You want to laugh at me now for eating bugs? Go ahead, because guess what? You know, the front page of the New York Times magazine in 10 years is going to be all about bug eating, and then I'll have the last laugh. To be out there in the world and put your arm around someone in the swamps of the you know, Philippines, who is collecting a, uh, a larval grub that only eats rotted coconut wood right. and grills them up. And to tell his story is as important as telling Pierre Gagnier's or Ferran Adria's on television. I think they're equally valid because they're both human beings. And I don't see any one human being as any more honored or more important than another. And so if that, you know, Donaldo, who took me into his home, who, you know, we dug the grub worms up and, you know, he's a Pilchi Indian uh, in the Ecuadorian Amazon to share a meal of coconut grubs with his kids. They collected, I'm going to get the math wrong, but we collected like 12. There were two of his kids, me and him. And he put two grubs on everyone's plate and then gave me like four or five on mine. Oh, by the way, the plate was a leaf. Right. Right. In a in a hut made of driftwood that he built, which was the fanciest home in the neighborhood. Mm. Um, that's a humbling experience. I'll eat that bug every day of the week because I'd rather be a better guest than I would a better You're you know, so make, good. making You're such... fun of him. Of course. And I knew, you know, the world is made up of people. I mean, I say it all the time, but I honestly think some people don't understand that it's about people and relationships and you got to be nice to people and you got to try to be the best version of yourself. It doesn't mean there are people out there who don't think I'm the biggest asshole in the world because I met them at the wrong time in my life or maybe it was a bad day and maybe I did treat them poorly. But I get up every day and I really think about trying. I mean, I have to think about it because otherwise I'll slip into my old behavior and my old thinking and you know, pick up a drink or a drug, but it's helped me so much in my career to pick a, a piece of content that I think does a lot of good in this world. And, you know, I, I just stuck with an idea that I was confident in was going to work. See, now you're so, you're a mentor to me because like you're teaching me a lesson right now, truly. Cause when people come up to me and they're like, Oh, I, I loved when you cooked on top chef. Mm -hmm. I, there's a part of me that gets offended by it because I'm like, I've done so much more mm -hmm. than just that thing. Sure. And you're just incredibly selfless. You're like, it was the thing that got me here and I have this responsibility. But look, look at it this way. And, and I'm not, I'm not trying to tell you how to feel because I know how frustrating. If I'm Richard, right. that's really frustrating for me at times. Yes, as definitely. The, <laughs> as, as you go through the ups and downs of careers at a, at a 
at a time in our industry where there's a lot more competition, there was less competition when I was coming up than when you were coming up, right? The way you have to navigate your life and your career is different than it was for me. But I believe that the way that you might want to think about looking at it is that that gave you the exposure and America got to fall in love with you. And then you got to go back on Top Chef and you got to have the successes that were very much deserved. And we saw more different sides of you. Sure. And it made you a better person. And now when I see you on different shows and when I see you doing different things and I watch you with people, people gravitate to you because they have made a connection with you because you made a very smart decision subconsciously or not that you were just going to be you. You weren't going to pretend to be someone else, right? And you're not portraying a role it's you and the fact that you're also able at the same time to have the hospitality company and do all those things and create that long tail play you know for your family as a businessman and entrepreneur um and you're a loving husband and you're a great dad but you're learning by you're learning by doing that's not easy either it's it's extremely difficult and we've talked about this privately and we've talked about it as a you know with my wife sitting next to me you know and uh even though she's not here um so you i mean the audience knows i'm not pulling a fast one no (laughs) it is extremely difficult to try to do all those roles and be all those people as long as you're yourself it's going to succeed because you've already proven that you can connect with other people and as long as you share yourself in the most authentic way that you can it is you can't lose and i'm not saying that that's going to mean that you're going to get all the silver gold you know what is it gold god and glory the conquistadors came for gold god and glory if they just came for the experience of traveling i believe they would have found the gold Mm. and they would have found the glory and they would have found it easier to connect with the god of their understanding i think if you only have your eye on the prize you miss it all the time i think if you just go through life and have a different set of guiding principles with the talents and the skill set that you have there's no way that you can fail i i listen i love that you just as sort of the tables have turned i mean you we should do a self-help uh, podcast i mean <laughs> but truly i mean you've been a mentor i mean you are on the top tier um, it's, I mean, it's been amazing just chatting with you and, and you've been so friendly to me for apparently no reason, you know, over the last number of years. So thanks for hanging out with us. The, the, it's, it's not for any apparent reason. And the, <laughs> the self-deprecation is very much appreciated, but when you get to a certain point, I, I believe me, there was a point in my life where I kept very careful track of the seven or eight rat bastards that when I was coming up, were not very nice to me. <laughs> Yes. And I believe you reach down and you pull other folks up behind you and you don't have time to do that for everyone. So where you, when you see someone and I could list whole bunches of them, you're among them when I had the chance to meet you and say, wow, that guy's one of the guys who's going to stick around. He's not going anywhere. He's got a good heart. He's going to stick around. It, it's, you, you reach yourself out and you, you just open yourself up to having a relationship with that person. And over the last, whatever, five, six years, one of the great joys of my life has been becoming friends with a lot of young chefs like yourself who I really believe are going to change the world and make it better for you know Noah and your kids and all the other kids. I, I think your generation is the one that's going to do it. I very much remember the 
handful of people that were not. And now when they sit there in their obsolescence, (laughs) overly desperate to come on to my show or to get a little of that halo effect, I say yes. And then I gently remind them of the times that in a very nice way that it really hurt my feelings when you then maybe can change their attitude rather than just resenting and hating and all the rest of that. Sure. So you just, you just approach it a different way. But also the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, we have a lot of fun just hanging out and making fun of people in the corner. We sure of the room do. At bad we sure parties. Do. Well, listen, I love uh, being in your halo, uh, to be honest. Um, Thanks for for hanging out with sure, us. And we, we do this one thing at the end of our show um, where we do an 86 version. Get it out of here. It's 86. So 86 that. in kitchens. We're done. We're out of it. Yep. So what are a couple of things or one or two things that you're just, you just want to 86? You're, you're over. It could be food, television. I don't like people to use the word foodie. I think no, it's diminutive. I, I think it's diminutive and I think no one's a doctory or a lawyer. But I'm such a foodie. It's just, I, I just think it's, I just think it's terrible. Um, same thing with veggie. I, I don't like that either. You know, nice. um, I mean, let's name them. So that other people know what they are. It sounds good to okay? me. Okay. I mean, I'd like people to know the difference between a turnip and a radish and a Ooh, parsnip. Yeah. You know, I mean, so let's let's name the vegetables. Um, I would, if I could wave my magic wand, um, make the food life that we all have available to everyone. Food in this world is a class issue. And I think that's very sad. And without going back into the social advocacy, social justice, you know, thought leadership side. Um, I think it's impossible to not want to 86 the people who so selfishly take it for granted. You know, look, chefs and restaurants have been the first volunteers and the most charitable givers historically over the course of my lifetime. I mean, any entity, the first thing you do is call people to donate food and chefs, any natural you know, disaster, whatever the first people there, you know, Chefs, you know, John Currents and John Besh standing on the street corners, you know, with, you know, propane tanks making, you know, soup, red beans and rice for people in Katrina. I mean, they were there before the first responders. They were there before the National Guard was there, right? Because the National Guard was holed up on the highway by the Superdome trying to figure out what was going on while Currents and Besh were there cooking food for people that were starving. Um I, I would like to 86 the Caesar salad for a while. Nice. I just think... <laughs> It, For a while, it's on every even the menu. kale, even it the can, kale Caesar, it can come back. It even can a come kale back. Caesar. I'm just going to say, yeah, because I think there's more interesting things to do with kale. I'm just, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm sick and tired of seeing that literally on every menu everywhere. The other thing that I don't want, uh, <laughs> I love this. I, you're going and deep. It's mostly in hotels, and they just have to drop it. Is the blank with chicken add four dollars with oh, shrimp oh, add three dollars? It's, it's like yeah. I don't get it. I just don't fucking <laughs> get it. Um, the other thing that needs to be 86 is the model of room service that when I call downstairs and, and this is not a diva thing. This is like just as a business guy, this could be at a, at a motel six. If you order just a pot of coffee, how long should that take? Right because away. They're reading a card that says, we'll have that to you in 35 to 45 minutes. I'm like, it's just a pot of coffee. Now, if it's two in the morning and they have to find the one guy who's on duty, I get it. But it's seven, eight in the morning in a big hotel. Have a bunch of runners that just have pots of coffee going places. Because I'm not, I'm not the only one that drinks coffee in the morning. No. I'm not asking you to go get me, you know. And if I just need a pot of coffee, like I need the pot of coffee. I do need the pot of coffee in the morning because <laughs> I'm up late doing emails when I shouldn't be. 
Unbelievable. Well, that was the best 86 games to date so far. Uh, I Listen, I'm not Jay Leno, but I'd like to have you back sometime. Can, can I come back? Please. We Are you kidding even, me? Like, we, went, we didn't even get into any of our scripted questions for you. You've been an amazing friend. Well, that's because you're so good to talk to. You are the top tier of talent in the food world. You're a real celebrity. Uh, you're even a, a more amazing person, and I think that was evidenced today. Uh, thank you so much for will hanging out. Will you flatter out. me? I will. I, it's, it's all the truth. Um, listen, everyone, uh, you can find us on Apple Podcasts. You can subscribe there and rate us. We need those ratings, right? Just like Andrew Zimmerman's talking about. If you rate us, then maybe we'll do more episodes, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you can also find us on the Podcast One app, but wherever you find us, uh, rate us, tell us how we're doing. Uh, Instagram at Starving for Pod, that's Starving the Number Four Pod on the Twitter and the Facebook and all of those things. And we'll see you soon. Until then, stay hungry. Thanks for listening to Starving for Attention with Richard Blaze. Listen to new episodes every Tuesday on the Podcast One app or subscribe now at Apple Podcasts or PodcastOne.com. There are 120,000 unsolved murder cases in America. It was the next day that I found out from my parents when it happened, that my sister was killed. Each one is called a cold case. Sometimes you have to look really closely to find the evidence. Damn I killed her. Damn it, I killed her. Cold Case Files, the podcast. Garcia is walking into the home of a real monster. I was nervous. I realized what kind of person I was dealing with. It's a goosebump moment. Download new episodes every Tuesday on the Podcast One app or subscribe at Apple Podcasts or PodcastOne.com.